Good morning. I'm Austin Hogan, one of the deacons here at St. Andrew, and uh, thank you for being here today, uh, especially to those that came despite already knowing I was preaching today. Um, it's very giving of you, uh, not just of your morning, but at least half your afternoon. So, But don't worry, there's going to be two intermissions. They'll be noted on, on the screen behind you, so you can look forward to those. Uh, and uh, when it says laugh, feel free to laugh. Um, and, and we'll have fun. Uh, we're going to pick up where Chad left off two weeks ago in Genesis in the story of Joseph. And as I was reading today's text, I was uh, reminded of a time when I was 10 or 11, and I was uh, with my mother at Great America, which was uh, sort of our Cedar Rapids growing up in California. And um, my mother's a low-level adrenaline junkie. And uh, loves roller coasters. I'm I'm on the complete opposite end. I'm still have yet to run out of things that I enjoy doing on the ground. And so, it you know I, I was sort of along literally for the ride, in some cases. And so we're in line at, at uh, what at the time was the fastest roller coaster in all of California, uh, Top Gun. And uh, don't worry, they paid for the rides. Um, so Top Gun, twists, turns, high speeds, and of course all of that was, was precipitated by a 91-foot drop. So here we are. It's the hot sun of, of California. We're inland, so no ocean breezes. And we're just making our way slowly up the stairs. And all I can hear is the screams of other people on this roller coaster and the roar of the roller coaster as it whips down and twists and, and you know, goes behind me as I'm, I'm in line and it really just made it worse. <laughs> and uh, all the more reason I thought to just not, not get on this thing. And so I was trying to get my attention on something else and, and so I just was listening to some of the conversations around me and like most people, there's just a lot of nervous energy and excitement as everybody's waiting in line. And, but, but I kept, my, my attention was drawn to this couple in front of me. And the, the man was hard to miss. Uh, he looked like he moved refrigerators for a living and had done so for so long, he was refrigerator-sized himself now. And, uh, and so he was with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend had that nervous energy and excitement, and she just wasn't sure if, if, she, if she could handle this ride. And he was, he was calm, cool, and collect. Don't worry, babe. I've been on roller coasters like this before. In fact, uh, the roller coasters in Texas are much bigger than this. You're going to be fine. We'll have fun. And so it went back and forth like this as we're waiting in line. And he, we, 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 I'll get up to the front. Our turn is next. I'm stuck thinking about how exactly I'm going to tell my mother I'm not getting on this thing. And so I look at her and I say, I'm standing right here. And I will see you when you get off the roller coaster. And she looked at me like I was crazy and got on the roller coaster and they go off. The ride comes back in and my mother gets off. She's red-faced, tears in her eyes, laughing so hard she can't breathe. And I'm like, what's going on? And I look over her shoulder and Mr. Refrigerator is passed out in the roller coaster there's three guys peeling him out of the seat so that the next group can get in. His girlfriend is cracking up. And, <laughs> I, and, and just reinforced that I made the best decision of everybody around me. And 
I, I, you know, I think about that, that story on occasion as, as a reminder of how many things in our life we think we're ready for and we have no idea what's coming next. And uh, it's also proof that there are some things outside of Texas that are bigger. Um, but one thing was true uh, that he said his girlfriend had a blast and walked away with a great memory, and, and so did a few of us. Uh, but as, as we turn to Joseph's story, and, and, and we see the image up here, uh, Joseph's had a bit of a roller coaster so far uh, in, in his own right. We meet Joseph as this naive teenager, right, the favored son of his father Jacob, and in turn resented pretty deeply by his brothers. And uh, so what do his brothers do? They, they decide to throw him down into a pit, exiled from his brothers, while they decide his fate over lunch. He's sold into slavery and is sent down into Egypt, but then he's sold to Potiphar, an Egyptian officer, and is elevated to manage uh, Potiphar's house. So, so he is, things are starting to get better, and he does a good job. But then uh, he, he rebuffs Potiphar's wife's advances, and she accuses him of attempted rape, and he's imprisoned. And now he's down in a pit again, by someone else's hand. He's, he's in prison in Egypt, and he befriends some, some fellow prisoners and interprets their dreams, and he says, when you're released, remember me. And what do they do? They forget him. He's in prison for another two years before one of them finally realizes, hey, I know this guy that might be able to help Pharaoh. So he's called up. He's called upon. He's brought to Pharaoh. He's cleaned up. He's dressed finely. He's presented to Pharaoh. And he interprets these dreams, right? He says, seven years of bountiful harvest followed by seven years of famine. So here's what you can do to prepare for that. And as we'll see today, he sort of hits that peak. He's exalted. He's exalted in the eyes of Pharaoh. He's exalted in the eyes of all the people of Egypt. And, and it sort of seems like we're at a turning point, right? Has Joseph arrived? We've seen him go through this separation, separated from his family, from his land, from his life's purpose, right? He was a shepherd, caring, wor working with his brothers. All of that's been taken away from him. And we also see this theme of Joseph going down, right? He's thrown down into a pit. He's sent physically down into a pit. Geographically, he's sent down to Egypt. And emotionally, that drop of being cut off from his family. And I, and I wonder how many of us, as resilient and faithful as we aspire to be, would have passed out at Joseph's first drop. In Joseph, we see a suffering yet faithful servant of God. Let us turn to uh, Genesis 41, starting in verse 37 for today's reading. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger 
and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath-Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of of famine began, just as Joseph has said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray with me. Father God, we ask that you remove the distractions of the day, the things in the back of our mind. God, bring us here, uh, focus our attention today on you in this moment. God, I thank you for the message that you've prepared. May it speak into the hearts and minds of, of all those listening. May it help uh, us to have a, a stronger, closer relationship with you, God. We lift all these things up in your name. Amen. So here we are on this roller coaster ride, and we, we've hit this peak. It's a victory. What began as a story of separation, of loss, and suffering has turned victorious for Joseph. He went from favored son to Hebrew slave to imprisoned foreigner, and now he's the de facto leader of Egypt. To bring some context to how unusual this must have been, verse 44 begins, I am Pharaoh, but... I'll I'll say that again. I'm Pharaoh, but in Egyptian history, pharaohs were not just political rulers. They were king and pope fused together. 
They were political, military, religious leaders. They were responsible for not just making laws, collecting taxes, but leading religious ceremonies, entering into war, managing all the land of Egypt, which, by the way, they owned entirely. And pharaohs were seen by the people of Egypt as the descendants of gods, descendants of the Egyptian gods. These were gods walking among the people. It's hard to imagine that when all your subjects treat you as a god, that you even know how to be deferential. Yet, he is, right? You know, I'm Pharaoh, but you make a good point. Let's do it your way. I'm Pharaoh, but maybe the mistake was mine. I, just, I, I can't imagine him saying these things to anybody, right? What he said was literally law. So, in finishing verse 44, Pharaoh says, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, Joseph, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. He's handing over the keys to the kingdom, literally. Full responsibility and management to a foreign slave. It's unprecedented. And this change, this begins the transformation outwardly of Joseph. He's given the highest rank a human could have, of course, because Pharaoh is godlike. He's given an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife of high birth. The passage tells us that Joseph is 30 when he takes this position on. By the end of chapter 41, the seven years of the bountiful harvest have passed and the famine has started, which means he's likely spent his entire adult life in Egypt. He's spent more time away from his family than he spent with them. He has every reason to assimilate into Egyptian culture, to, to let go of the ways of his past, of his family, of, of let, let go of his old God and fully become Egyptian. But we know he doesn't. We know that he remains close to God. He remains faithful to God. We see that in the passage before this when uh, he tells Pharaoh, I can't interpret the dreams, right? It's through God that I can send this message. He names his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, which are not Egyptian names. Manasseh, right? He's, it means cause for forgetfulness, right? And he's giving God the credit, right? God, I'm naming this child Manasseh in honor of you helping me forget this suffering and pain and separation from my family. And he names his second son Ephraim, which, which means fruitful or fertile, productive, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, he says, the land of Joseph's suffering and separation. And what, what an incredible end to this, this terrible story, right, with these ups and downs he's had. And this chapter, in some ways, as I was reading it, feels like the culmination of Joseph's story. And what a great last line to end this epic. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, right? And then it goes to black, and the cursive end spells out. That's the end of the story, right? That's the Hollywood ending. Poetic, cinematic, right? The, the suffering and pain and deep despair. He climbs his way to the top. He has power, prestige, wealth. He got the girl. He has two sons to carry on his name. And the best part, he was right. He was right about everything. He was right about the seven years of good harvest. Check. 
the, the need to save grain, check. A brutal famine, check. I mean, this guy's got everything going for him. Could we write a better story? I don't know if we could, but thankfully it's not our story to write. And as we know, the story's not over. It's funny, my, my grandmother had a, a longtime friend, a friend of the family, who they, were, they met in college and they were opposites in every way. When, where she liked numbers, my grandmother was, was uh, into art and color and drawing. And, and uh, my grandmother became an art teacher and she became a math teacher and then an accountant. And, but, but they seemed to sort of play off each other. And they both loved reading. But even in that, they were different. Um, my grandmother's friend Janet, uh, whenever she decided to pick out a book, whether it was recommended or she saw it, she would pick it up, she'd open to the last few pages and read the ending. <laughs> I didn't get it. My grandmother didn't get it. But her, her defense was, well, I don't want to spend weeks reading this book if I don't like the ending. And it's, it's funny, as I was reading Joseph's story, uh, that... <laughs> that that thought came to me of, you know, reading this section of Joseph and saying, well, okay, I can read this book. Yeah, this sounds like a good ending to land on. Um, but we know that Joseph's story keeps going. Uh, we, we see him as a shining example of the suffering servant. And we know that his story keeps going because it, pounce, it points to a more profound redemption than just Joseph. In 2019, I heard Andrew Brunson speak at the EPC General Assembly. As some of you know, Andrew's an EPC missionary who was arrested and put into a Turkish prison, prison for two years on false charges of aiding a failed overthrow of the Turkish government. So this wasn't just a nuisance arrest. They really wanted to pin something really serious on him. He shared his story uh, at the EPC General Assembly, and he talked about this romantic idea of suffering, of joining the, the pantheon of Christian martyrs throughout history that suffered for their beliefs, that suffered for God. But once in prison, he said, that romanticism quickly faded away. His, his long and strong relationship with God was, was weakened to a breaking point, and all that was left was suffering. He returned home to a hero's welcome, but he didn't feel like a hero. He spoke of his spirit completely breaking, feeling wholly cut off from God. He lost more than 50 pounds while in prison, and it was about eight or nine months later that he was speaking in front of us, and he still looked weak. He still looked underweight, and you could see him wearing the scars of that experience. And I believe many of us hold to that romantic idea of, of suffering for God because the redemption arc that we see ends in our triumph. I think part of why we're drawn to and, and comforted by the victory that we see in Joseph's story is what we see in his story we want to see in our own. We want to see the suffering servant rewarded by God. We want to see Joseph exalted. There's a comfort in that. 
what story do you see unfolding in your life? Because all of us, without thinking about it, are writing a version of our lives, the version we want to live out. And even as we place our faith and our fate in God's hands, we have a version of our lives that we hope comes true. How often do we write our own triumphant ending? Does suffering for God grant us a golden ticket to victory? Like Joseph, people suffering for God fills, fills the pages of history. The suffering servant, through agony and death, is exalted to become a source of life to others. Right? The suffering servant goes through this suffering, this agony, this pain, and sometimes death. And through that painful journey is exalted, is, is lifted up to become a source of life to others. And we see with Joseph, he's abused at the hands of his brothers, of slave traders, of a deceitful woman. He's unjustly imprisoned. The Joseph we first meet no longer exists by the time he stands in front of Pharaoh. The Joseph his father Jacob grieves is dead. Replaced by a man of God shaped by his suffering and faithfulness to God. Joseph is then exalted by Pharaoh, made into a ruler with great power. And what does he do? He saves millions of lives from a great famine through God's blessing. But Joseph's story is not over. God's redemption arc for Joseph is not complete. Because unlike our version of redemption, the redemption arc that God brings ends in his triumph. Andrew Brunson wrote an account of his time imprisoned in Turkey. For part of the time, he was given a Bible and was able to read daily. This passage is near the start of his trial in the summer of 2018. Over a year and a half into his imprisonment, he writes, One day, I was reading in the Bible where Paul wrote, Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I had read Philippians 2 many times, but this time this verse plunged straight into my heart. Paul was describing me. I was so caught up in my own concerns, gaining my freedom and returning to my family. But what about the interests of Jesus? What if his purposes were best served by me being kept in prison? I was sure that several years ago, God had given me an assignment to prepare for a spiritual harvest in Turkey. Now as I heard about the large number of people praying for me around the world, and that it was not tapering off but actually spreading, I was beginning to see how it could serve God's interest for me to be in prison. I had become a magnet drawing prayer into Turkey. Should I not be willing to serve God by being in prison? I felt my failure so deeply, I wept and asked God to forgive me. God's redemption arc does not guarantee our triumph. Joseph's powerful story uh, is, is so meaningful, not from the innocent downfall or the speedy ascent to power, but in Joseph's steadfast faithfulness to God for the triumph that points not just to God but to the ultimate 
suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered abuse, ridicule, betrayal, and finally death so that he could rise from the dead and ascend to the throne to be exalted all so he could save, right? It's all so that he could be a source of life to others. In that case, all of us. When we, hear, when, when, when we hit that first drop or the next one in our lives, we might well pass out. But rest assured that Jesus will take the wheel. Amen.